Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 11th of October at 6.34pm, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today we're in 2000, and the song is Cobbs Cook Bay. A quick content note that today's episode features references to suicide and suicidal ideation. Cobscook Bay is a strange little song. It opens with a hushed guitar line that has a twinkling, exploratory quality. I'm put in mind of the halting step of the cows who come gingerly out of the barn to test whether or not the ground is warm in the near-contemporaneous onions. That song, from the coroner's gambit, has an unusual gentleness, an attentiveness to the natural world which finds kinship and solace in its cycles of renewal, even though our narrator at first isn't sure if he can stand it. Seeing the geese heading north again, and the earth's cold heart melting, the singer can feel my heart in my throat again, and thinks as if by a kind of sympathetic magic of those new onions growing in the ground. On encountering Cobscook Bay, released on the 2000 EP Is a Panasad Radio Hour, the first-time listener might be expecting lyrics of a similar tenor, and the second verse seems appropriately wonderstruck by the possibility of new, fragile life. Cow gave birth and her calves are snow white, they huddle up close together at night, and the mama cow leans down and cleans her young, licking their faces with her tongue. But we're not there yet, and what happens in the verse before this makes the image land distinctly differently. First, we're introduced to a narrator who seems to be living quite a lonely existence. They have some company, we're alone most of the time these days, but that plural pronoun never appears again, and the following lines are, in the words of a minor Morrissey B-side, a succession of people saying goodbye. We don't know anything about Jill, who used to come by but then went away, other than the fact of her absence. Something about the cadence of Gail used to come around and trash the joint is reminiscent of the nameless chick that used to dance a lot, who got up and slapped Johnny's face in Thin Lizzy's The Boys Are Back in Town, a song John Daniel has covered on multiple occasions. But unlike The Boys, Gail isn't coming back, and neither are you, whoever that might be to this narrator. The reason is as shocking a left turn as you'll ever find in a Mountain Goat song, and all the more so for the tidy symmetry of its description. She moved off to Dana Point, and you went along just for the ride, and you both committed suicide. The only rational response to this sudden, incomprehensible act is complete bewilderment. Where the fuck did that come from? But just as soon as the idea has surfaced, it's immediately replaced by another image and an emotional response to that image, the simple conjunction and begging the question of relation or non-relation. And day was breaking over Cobbscook Bay, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. All the previous verbs since the initial acknowledgement that we're alone have been in the past tense. This reaction is present, or rather ongoing. No sunrise since has been comparable to the experience of this one. In the second verse, the force of this recognition seems to have made the suicide present, active, in progress again, as if it could still be stopped if only the narrator wasn't so far away, and you're falling off that cliff somewhere in California, which I've never seen. What he has seen is the cow and her careful tenderness, her commitment to keeping warm and nurturing something which has just been born. Between these poles of life and death, between the fatal plunge and the sunrise, there's nothing but airplanes, unmarked as if doing everything possible to resist their co-option into symbolic meaning, 
which buzz the air overhead in the service of a thousand journeys which have nothing to do with the only one the singer is able to think about, conducted by people who have never so much as thought about him, Gale, or you. I put the pieces all together, but I don't know what they mean. The flat refusal of these various events to coalesce into any narrative which could provide anything like a satisfying answer, remaining instead on the level of pure and, reminds me in a darker key of something Seamus Heaney said was the hallmark of John Clare's poetry, the inexorable one-thing-after-anotherness of the world. In reaching for even this loose interpretive frame, I'm conscious that I'm reading partly against the grain of the song. Darnielle introduced Cobb's Cook Bay on its first live outing in 2007, by fan request, as one of a group of songs where I look at it and I have no idea what I was talking about, where that story came from, what it was driving at, who these people are, and why they had to die. Not all of these questions are answerable, but what's undeniable is that this isn't the first time John has had cause to ask them. Speaking to VH1 after the release of Tallahassee, Daniel acknowledges that there's a sadistic pleasure in writing about bad situations, but that the difficult part in writing about the alpha couple is that I feel like I'm doing harm to someone I know. A couple of years earlier, he told Corey Brown that he reached a point while writing Sweden when I honestly asked myself whether I could stand punishing my characters anymore. It really was entirely within my power to grant or deny them the one thing they desperately needed, and I wouldn't give it to them because then I wouldn't have my piddling little songs. Observing that his mission in life has been to dangle a little joy in front of his characters' noses and then make them beg fruitlessly for it, he wonders aloud whether there isn't something very wrong with a creative impulse because I think that this is basically what all artists do. Some artists, however, care less than others about leavening the violence and suffering their narratives explore with easy answers, the kind that allow you to find some or any meaning in putting the pieces all together. And behind this strange song and others like it, which refuse the kind of coherence which can lead to closure, we might descend the hand of another self-described practitioner of strange stories. To read a story by Robert Aikman, an author whose work permanently unnerved the young Daniel and significantly shaped his later writing, is to find yourself embarked on a journey to an unknown destination that once reached proves even less comprehensible than the events along the way. In her introduction to Compulsory Games, an anthology of Aikman's work released in 2018, Victoria Nelson describes her subject's commitment to a bleak corner-of-the-eye effects, blink-and-you'll-miss-it moments where the contours of conventional reality seem to warp and shift after which the protagonist's life never quite gets back on track, at least not in the usual way. If you haven't encountered what this looks like in practice, put yourself in the position of the 10-year-old Daniel reading Whispers magazine in 1977 and about to encounter Aikman's narrative tricks for the first time. Celia, the 16-year-old protagonist of Le Miroir, is a promising artist who has recently arrived in Paris to enroll in a long-established and old-fashioned private atelier. Furnishing her garret apartment, Fortunately, Celia could depend upon an adequate allowance. She visits a low, dark, hopelessly untidy antique shop to pick up some mirrors. The new place has none, and the crumbling old piles she grew up in had always had several. One in particular catches the young buyer's attention. First, for the obvious reason that she could not live without it. Secondly, because it bore extremely faded traces of mysterious male and female figures round the upper part of the frame, Thirdly, because the face that had just looked back at her from its shallows and depths had not been her own. It's hard to imagine quite what a child of this age might have made of this chilling moment, or of the story's many other forays into the eldritch. 
To take just one, the apparently literal description of Celia's fellow art students as either complete babies feeding from bottles containing corn flour, or in certain cases, motionless skeletons also fed with corn flour, though not from bottles because they could not suck. The miroir also name drops Frederick Leighton and St. Thomas Aquinas, so overall there must have been a lot to process. On the other hand, by this point Daniel had already taken to staying up pretty late and presumably unsupervised in his fragmenting house shortly after his parents' divorce, watching weird no-budget horror films on a local TV station. Terrified as he was by the sudden unseen arrival of a headless corpse in the 1958 monster movie The Crawling Eye, he was also, secretly even to himself, discovering that he enjoyed the visceral horror inspired by the senselessness of the whole sequence, since it didn't seem related to anything. This response seems to bear out the words of Sir Cherevel Sitwell, which Aikman used as an epigram for another collection. It is the mystery that lasts, and not the explanation. It lasted long enough, in any case, for the adult Daniel to trace elements of his own approach to narrative, namely being okay with the reader feeling unsettled, back to Aikman, across a range of interviews discussing his fiction. Though sympathetic to those who crave hard explanations, Daniel prefers to approach the mystery and sit with it. It's an important moment as a reader, I think, when you can forget the question of whether you need to know what happened. In good horror generally, he now expects some feeling of having become destabilised or not knowing where you're situated. This disquieting vibe has been explored less thoroughly with regard to Daniel's songwriting, at least outside of its evocations of specific monsters and horror tropes, but it's there, as early as the likes of The Water Song, Water came springing out the side of the wall, and I guess the same thing will happen to us all. We don't know how to explain what I mean. I mean to say it's kind of hard to explain. Faced with a kind of generalised doom which seems essentially beyond the scope of human understanding, the singer, and with him the Bright Mountain Choir, gleefully invites his own demise. Let them kill me. The whole thing is set to a laid-back sequence of choppy, chiming major chords, like something you might expect to hear around a campfire in a surfing hotspot, if Jack Johnson were given to cheery evocations of the intimate entanglement of love and death. I'm the glass, you're the water that fills me, I hear them coming now, let them kill me. If you find it hard to pass what's going on here, you're in good company. Ignore the verses, they're nonsense, Daniel told a 2019 audience, before exhorting them to sing the chorus like you mean it, in his last live set before the pandemic put an end to ordinary touring schedules. This admission solves the mystery of the song in a certain facile way. Like many early Mountain Goats compositions, the water song likely emerged from a practice of improvisation in which surprise was as important to the singer as the listener. Daniel described this process as the ultimate space of freedom where you can say what you mean because you spoke before you meant it. You are hearing ideas as they are being born. Jeff Sanborn has recently compellingly explained how a song might come together as a result of this activity the singer painting a scenario that arises from and sinks back into empty, open space. And it must be something like this exploratory process which generated Cobbscook Bay, the sense of ambient desolation and the particularly pointless misery of yet another person having left you behind just for the ride, leading, as rhyme has a way of doing, in the words of the modern formalist poet A.E. Stallings, to an alchemical, irrational, sensual link between two words. Some more of Salings's provocations which feel appropriate to the kind of improvisatory, sound-led writing that can bring a practitioner to a place like this. Rhyme schemes. Rhyme frees the poet from what he wants to say. Rhyme is at the wheel. No, rhyme is the engine. 
All of that said, it still seems worthy of comment that suicide should be the rhyme word to suggest itself, entering into the world of the song like an intrusive thought. My own experience of suicidal ideation has largely been second-hand, but I've seen enough of it in people close to me to recognise the truth of Anna Borges's description in the outline that, for many of us, the threat of suicide isn't like being carried over a waterfall. It is like living in the ocean, not as sea creatures do, native and equipped with feathery gills to dissolve oxygen from my bloodstream, but alone with an expanse of water at all sides. Some days are unremarkable, floating under clear skies and smooth waters. Other days are tumultuous storms. You don't know you'll survive, but you're always, always in the ocean. The Coroner's Gambit, released in the same year as Cobb's Cook Bay, comes closer to those tumultuous storms than most Mountain Goats records, and long before Daniel started explicitly telling his listeners to just stay alive. The songwriter's most haunted work to date. It's a body of work which, as Jeff writes beautifully in response to a quote given to Space City Rock, is not only pointed toward the grave, but approaching it ferociously, as if in the state of dread and desire that precedes the moment of maximum impact. These recordings, redolent with fear and trembling, seem to speak powerfully of Daniel's answer when asked by Mother Jones interviewer Alexander Salmon, what scares you most? The possibility of disaster remains horrific to me, like when you know everything's about to go wrong in a way that's not controllable or knowable. The narrative position of the apparently powerless observer will go on to be a hallmark of Daniel's work from Have to Explode to Before I Got Here. Around the same time, an equally striking persona of Daniel's is starting to emerge, that of the Avenger, a figure who is considerably more certain about what's about to happen precisely because they are the one in control, the killer dressed in pilgrim's clothing, the landmine hidden in the sand. The chorus of Horseradish Road concisely distills the observer's tragic vision, because in this car, in this car, somebody's bound to get burned. I know, I know, because I've been watching the road turn. But in Cobscook Bay, the narrator doesn't even seem to have this level of preparation. The suicide in the song is presented as an alarmingly sudden decision, the whim of a moment. Though we don't know anything specific about the mental state of Gail or you, we might hear its echo in the closing pages of Daniel's 2014 novel, Wolf in White Van. People don't usually understand this when I try to explain it, which is why I've stopped trying, but when it came down to the actual moment, I was trying to make a right decision, writes Sean, our narrator, of a decision which forecloses the infinite futures of being a different person available to him in favour of this. Positioning a rifle beneath his chin and maybe crying, either because I didn't want to do this or because I did, it was hard to tell. Or we might turn to a composition closer in time, the title track of The Coroner's Gambit, which presents the suicidal impulse as less a decision, more a seduction. Here, death comes calling with a dazzling smile, sparkling eyes, and a shiny black plastic tray gleaming with new silk scars. Our narrator wishes repeatedly, near frantically, that he could stay with the person he's addressing. You know how badly I wanted to. Didn't want, didn't want, didn't want, didn't want to lose you. But ultimately finds the pull of this figure and his gentle grace impossible to resist. The album as a whole wrestles with the memory of an absent friend, the Pomona musician Ros Williams, whose band Christian Death were huge in the West Coast goth scene towards which Daniel was drawn in the early 80s, and who became a personal friend. Those who knew Ros, John writes in a section of the liner notes addressed to him directly, had been predicting your death since the early 80s. 
And their own close association seems to have come to an end with a night in around 1990 when he tried to strangle the life out of John in a friend's apartment. Not without reason, Daniel adds in a dark parenthesis, likely alluding to his own self-destructive behaviour during their acquaintance, a short, very wasted period of heavy substance abuse from which he got out eventually and Ros did not. Although the pair hadn't spoken for eight years by the time Williams took his own life in 1998, the death put Daniel unexpectedly and forcefully in touch with a younger version of himself, the you who knew them when, and who was at one time embarked on a similar path with a similar ending in mind. Shadow Song and Blue Jays and Cardinals channeled a complex grief which this event resurfaced into elegies with the plangent power of Tennyson's In Memoriam. The latter frames a person being mourned as a type of Persephone, activating nature with his presence above ground. Skies clear up if they're overcast. Apples fatten on the trees when you walk by. We don't hear about what happens to it all when he isn't there anymore, but we can take a good guess. Both songs, like Cobscook Bay, are sung from the stunned perspective of the person left behind. You slip free, without me. The coroner's gambit itself instead inhabits, with an empathetic clarity that is probably the closest its speaker can come to making peace with his loss, the perspective of a person who, on a particular day, just couldn't say no anymore. When this batch of songs was released, I was the age at which Daniel read Le Miroir, and I'm not sure how I would have handled either its strategic opacities or its unsettling ending, in which the mirror's mysterious depths show young Celia the face of a woman middle-aged and beyond all chance of concealment, and seem ultimately to destroy her physical form altogether. My own literary activities at the time were not those of a person interested in subtlety or nuance. I had started producing on my family computer with its new screaming.net internet connection, which I first remember using to look at the website for Robot Wars, a homemade newspaper called the Wacko Weekly. Along with derivative cartoons, enthusiastic TV reviews and parodies of song lyrics, I was dedicating column inches to scabrous satirical portraits of my classmates for such social transgressions as having weird pets and crying too easily. Quite reasonably, some of them in turn complained to the effect that I was served with the year six equivalent of a cease and desist order. I remember at the time feeling popular enough that I could get away with something like this, and I clearly enjoyed being the centre of gossip without having yet developed any of the shame attendant on expecting to become its subject. The things I was writing were cheap and unfair, and obviously gave me a feeling of power. I'm wondering now of my weird position in the school pecking order, part of a cohort of five kids repeating the final year of primary school for a second time out of a justified fear that we'd only get bullied if they sent us into secondary school too early, made me see myself as aloof and untouchable, or merely detached and instinctively outside of something. Here I am, in any case, in the middle of a line of children pulling unself-conscious poses on the playing field, will soon be leaving to enter another world, lonelier than this one, its rules more alien, its comforts less assured. In a final spritz of end-of-school camaraderie, we're all probably about to start writing our names on each other's shirts and backpacks, to give ourselves something to remember these last seven years by, or simply to make a mark, to say it mattered. Here were a few sharp, small shards of shrapnel I couldn't fit into the main episode. I'm not confident enough to call this a source, but the title story of Compulsory Games turns, in the most literal and so inadequate sense, on a man whose wife starts taking flying lessons with a neighbour for whom she eventually, incrementally, leaves him. 
In its final image, he stares up into the sky at their private plane, only to find that the two women apparently aren't in it. The horizon had begun once more to buzz, and this buzzing sound grows to encapsulate a cold, ear-destroying but still quasi-human shriek as the pilotless red moth, its proper size as uncertain as ever, hurtles across and down, absorbing and dissolving and slaying, grotesquely beyond all question that Colin could formulate or answer that he could accept. If you're wondering what these song parodies look like, in an odd bit of unpaid product placement, Ricky Martin's 1999 hit became a peon to the pleasures of drinking a Coca-Cola. These days I mostly cry during the contestant introductions on game shows. Ros Williams was known to his family as Roger Painter. He was gender non-conforming and seems to have changed his name when he started making music. Daniel borrowed the name Roger Painter for the teenage metalhead protagonist of his 33 and a third book, a novella on Black Sabbath's Master of Reality, returning to Roz's memory another decade after the writing of these songs. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the Substack newsletter. Thanks to John Daniel for letting me quote from his songs. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes or linked directly in the newsletter. You can find me on Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where you can get updates on new episodes, or on Twitter as at NotRockyHorror. If you like the show, you can always leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help more people discover it. Or you can always just tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into Robert Aikman. Really, JD is onto something here.